Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and we have another fabulous, fabulous guest. I can't wait to introduce you to Henna Pryor is a highly sought after workplace performance expert and an award-winning two times TEDx and global keynote speaker, virtual presenter, team facilitator, and professional executive coach. Her clients call her their secret weapon for impossible change and honor she wears proudly. She does not accept excuses and believes that the very qualities that have led high achievers to their current success are precisely what hold them back from even greater levels of accomplishment and personal fulfillment. She is known for her science-backed approach to improving the performance, habits, and actions of hungry high achievers in her fun, no-nonsense, no-jargon way to move them from their first level, level of success to their next one. She's also a lifelong learner. She's been studying human behavior and performance for over two decades and loves to bring a fresh energy to business practices and conversations. Her highly anticipated book, Good Awkward, publishes in September and it's available for pre-order now. Welcome to the show, Henna. Thank you, Kristen. It's so good to see you. How, I was actually just thinking as you were introducing how long have we known each other now? Two or three years, maybe? I was going to say, I always say now it feels like I asked myself pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, right. and I feel right. like we knew each other at least a year and a half or so pre-pandemic. So it's probably been right. almost four years now, I would yeah. say. Yeah, something like, gosh, time flies. Yes. Yeah, I was trying to do the math in my head. <laughs> I know, time flies. And we, when we met, we were, I just was immediately um, just loved everything about Henna because her energy and her, and the beautiful duality of her being somebody who's super ambitious, goal-oriented, driven, um, which I can relate to, but then also has that, which I always describe as that yin and the yang, like that other part that's like, yeah, but there's this fun and playfulness and life. It doesn't have to be so serious. We get to be able to hold on to both of those. So love that about you immediately. So I'm so excited to have this conversation today. Thank you. I think this is exactly why we connected because we we were actually in our little pre-chat. Yeah, I was sharing with Kristen, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, I will always take my work seriously, but never myself seriously. And Kristen, you know, I've seen and observed in our conversations kind of shares the same ethos. So love that we have that in common, my friend. So excited for this. Yes. So kind of, I loved your bio because it helps people get to know a lot more about you, but you've been an entrepreneur, a highly successful entrepreneur, but you had that ama- an amazing journey that got you to where you are today. Definitely want to talk a lot about your book because I, I think it's such a, such an interesting concept. And I love the way that you, um, the angle that you take with this book, I think it's really, really effective, but start off by sharing a little bit more about your journey and what got you to the work that you're doing now. Sure. So without, again, going too, too deep into the backstory of, you know, Hannah Pryor as a baby, I think it's an important context setting to know that 
I am the firstborn American child of two immigrant parents. My parents were born in uh, India and Pakistan, respectively, you know, grew up there, spent their formative years there, and then came to the U.S. when they got married. My mom was 17. My dad was 30. And 11 months later came Henna uh, when my mom was 18 as, you know, their first child. And so, you know, my story, I think similar to a lot of firstborn of immigrant parents is, you know, all the opportunities are there. We did all of this for you. So go get them, right? Go grab them by the horns and go. So from a young age, you know, both culturally and just being the first in the U.S. was very um, encouraged to try things to achieve, to uh, get good grades, to get into a good school, good college. So I, um, you know, did all of that, made my parents very proud. My first job out of college was at Ernst & Young. Although I made some of my best friends in the world, that job absolutely sucked my soul out of my body. I am not meant to be an auditor. And that pivoted to, since I was in accounting, a 14-year career in finance and accounting staffing with a company called K-Force, which was actually the first time in my life I had ever dabbled in sales. It was a 100% commission job. And within a day of me starting that, I said, oh, here's the side of my personality that I had not yet tapped into and that I love. So did that for 14 years, ready for a new challenge, started my own company doing executive coaching, speaking, training. And that's what I've been up to the last few years. And I somehow love it even more, you know, leaning even further into my natural gifts and things that I love to do. And so I'm just, I'm so grateful for all of it. Yeah. I think what I love for you with what you get to do as an entrepreneur that I can see how it blends well for you is that you also get to create what your reality looks like, what you want to go after, what you say yes to, um, what work-life integration might look like. Um, I think all entrepreneurs can be struggling with always asking ourselves that question. So when you started to realize that you felt really compelled, because I always notice when people are ready to write a book, it's like, it's their, their book baby, right? There's something in Mm -hmm. them that they're really feeling such a fire in them to get that message out. And so what was that first catalyst that you realized like this message is really important. I need to write a book. Yeah. And I think every author has that moment, right? Where you're kind of like, it's here and I can't unsee it now. Now I know what the idea is and I can't unsee it. So let me first answer why I didn't write a book sooner, because I wanted to write a book since the fifth grade. Like I'm actually kind of amazed. I've always loved to write. It's just something in my DNA. You know, I wrote for my high school newspaper. I had a Tumblr blog back when all, you know, all of us in our twenties had Tumblr blogs, right? I've just always enjoyed creative writing and, you know, never monetized it, never did anything with it, but I just enjoyed it. And so I knew there was going to be a book in me at some point, but what really made me fearful and nervous, if I'm just being honest, is it would have broken my heart to write a book and and this is the people pleaser in me. I'm just owning it. And any one person, even one critic would say, gosh, this book has already been written a thousand times, right? We've already had this conversation a thousand times. So what I did not want to write is another get comfortable being uncomfortable, be a beginner, you know, stay at your growth edge, get out of your comfort zone. Like we know that book. We've read iterations of that book. And again, I think that message remains important. And even I'm not discouraging anyone from writing that book because your voice and your perspective is important. For me, I was struggling to find a different voice or a different perspective on the conversation that was already had. And then I remember hearing uh, a lot of us in our space, we love Brene Brown, right? We would listen to her podcast. And I remember she would say at the end of her podcast episodes, stay awkward, brave, and kind. Stay awkward, brave, and kind. And all I could think to myself was, I know how to stay brave. 
and I know how to stay kind, but my whole childhood and my whole teen years, I felt so awkward, so different, so out of place. And I don't want to stay like that. That feeling sucked. Like that feeling was uncomfortable. I'm not into staying awkward. And so then I got curious, like, what does it mean to stay awkward? And why is that so hard for people? Why does the second part of that equation feel easier? And that first part feels so hard. And I realized no one in the professional development space had done a deep dive on awkwardness. So there it was. Yeah. And so I'm so intrigued. I think everybody listening right now wants to hear like, what is it around? And I like the way you position around the good awkward. Um, What does it look like to start to embrace that good awkward? Sure. So quick definition, because I think it's important for context. There's a variety of definitions of awkward, but for the context of our chat today, we can think of it as awkwardness is an emotion that we feel when the person that we believe ourselves to be, call it our true selves, momentarily or for a period of time, feels a gap between that person or is at odds with that person and the person in that moment that is on display. So it's there's a gap between the person we feel we are and the person that they see. And in those moments, we feel awkward. So again, let's just say, for example, I was courageous enough to put up my hand in a meeting and share an idea. And I'm thinking it's a great idea. And everyone looks at me like, you idiot. Like, or we already said this. That was that happened two weeks ago. Right? And you're like, oh God, awkward, cringe, embarrassing, right? Because for that moment, the person we believe ourselves to be smart, capable, knows how to contribute to the conversation is at odds with the person on display. That big dummy, that person doesn't even listen. They don't even know what they're talking about. And an awkwardness is is an emotion that we feel. Now, the good awkward, when we talk about good awkward versus bad awkward, the distinction that I'm trying to carve out and create is often we feel awkward and we just immediately think all awkwardness is bad. It's not a comfortable emotion. We need to eliminate it. We need to get rid of it. If we feel it, that's a deficiency. That's a weakness. That means we're not confident enough in what we're doing. Bad awkward is when we feel it and we no longer take risks as a result, right? It paralyzes us. It keeps us stuck. Good awkward is actually not just staying in it, especially when we're seeking it out, right? In life's planned moments, anytime we're in an inflection point, anytime we're trying to grow, the invitation to awkwardness is going to be higher because you're in uncertainty. You're putting yourself into a situation. It's not just staying in it. Good awkward is actually seeking it out, Mm. right? How do we start to invite that feeling more and more? And so I want people to really just go into that emotion with a whole different lens and a whole different set of tools on how to navigate it when it comes. I love that. And if we are to um, connect that to what you talk about in terms of what happens when individuals are ambitious and then they're starting Mm -hmm. to go this next level and what got them there won't get them to where they need to go next. How does that connect to this good, awkward piece? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, this was my journey over and over because as my confidence increased, you know, or my expertise, my competence increased, I think part of me very unrealistically was like, all of this is just going to keep feeling easier because I'm getting better and better, right? It's not going to feel as awkward anymore. I know what I'm doing. I have some level of expertise. And yet life is such that when you are on this journey of ambition, you're on this journey of growth at every inflection point, that awkward feeling comes right back. So just, I'll make it concrete. I, you know, have never written a book. This is my debut nonfiction book. And I went to a book show in New York a couple of weeks ago. 
a bunch of publishers, bunch of agents, just, you know, high profile folks that have been doing this forever. CEO of Barnes and Noble. I knew I would feel a bit awkward and out of place and literary folks are a little more introverted. It's not our speaker community. It's very, you know, extroverted and talk to anybody. I knew I would feel a bit awkward. I felt incredibly awkward, Kristen. I felt, and you know, I'm, I'm extroverted for the most part, but I felt so fumbly, stumbly. Somebody publisher from Blackstone asked me a question and I literally was like, I had to respond this way. I said, I don't know what you're asking me. I, I don't even know what these words mean yeah. that you're saying. You know, I'm a first time author, but here I am, the person I believe myself to be, someone who's written a book, who feels like she should belong in the room. And then the person on display is, I forget the word he used, something about, you know, EPUB, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at this guy going, I don't even know what this word means. I have no idea. Awkward. Like, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm stumbling and fumbling. But every time we put ourselves into a new situation, a new room, a new inflection point, a new transition, that comes with the territory. So ambition and awkwardness, hand in hand, every single time. I think that's a great example. And if you're, if somebody's listening to this and thinking, okay, great. So now I'm in that situation, whether it be what you talked about with the publishers, or maybe it's in that high stakes meeting and the person felt like they said the wrong thing or something where they're feeling in their body, those really, really uncomfortable emotions. What are some coping strategies you would suggest when that happens? Because part of it is like learning how to work with it because it's not going to go anywhere. Sure. Sure. So before the book is sort of divided into two parts, you know, before we go into tools and strategies in the moment, you know, the pre-work that I would love people to consider doing is really understanding and reflecting on what their awkwardness represents, right? Mm -hmm. So like every emotion, people feel it on a spectrum. And for some people, it's a trait. I am socially awkward, right? Some people will fully self-identify as I'm an awkward human. I am socially awkward. For others, it's a state, right? I feel awkward right now. That, that conversation felt so awkward for me right? It's a temporary transient thing. So I think the first thing just to back up a little is how do you experience awkwardness? If it is something that you latch onto as a trait, it's starting to spend the time reframing it, understanding the role of its life. You know, where is it coming from? Often it's rooted in deep need for approval, things like that. So step one is front loading some self-reflection and self-awareness work, which I have lots of stuff in the book about how to do that. But if you find yourself in the moment, which is going to happen, right? Awkwardness occurs in life's unplanned moments. Whoops, I tripped over my own two feet in front of everybody. And it occurs in life's planned moments. I raised my hand to try to say this thing and it didn't go as planned, right? When that happens and it doesn't go as planned, there's a couple of things you can do. But one of my favorite strategies, my number one is name the darn thing. Mm. Name it because the avoidance of awkwardness increases awkwardness. So when you can actually say, well, I tried and that was a miss, awkward, right? But um, hey, I tried, right? I threw that out there. That immediately diffuses the tension. It actually comes across, the statistics and research prove it actually comes across as confident when you can actually name it and diffuse it. And it gives you an opportunity to circle back and I'll sort of put it into the room. Hey, I tried something. And so there's actually multiple benefits and a lot of you know humanization that happens in that moment that is very connective for the person that you misstepped with. So name it is my number one out of the many strategies I share. That's my number one. 
So anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while, you would be very familiar with me talking a lot about this because my expertise in emotional intelligence, I talk so much about name it to tame it, right? So as soon as you start to just even acknowledge like you're in a non-judgmental way and just like, okay, this is what's here right now. It starts to lose a lot of its power and you're inviting it in. And I love what you said there for part two as well is there's a level of humility, which I really appreciate about you, Henna, and your book as well. I think the more that we can talk through this good awkward, it's also just saying like to be human is mm-hmm. to do this. And while others might even sometimes appear very confident, I, I'm sure, Hannah, you could speak to this as well. I can, as someone who works with emerging leaders all the way to CEOs in every industry across the board, There are so many times where that person might be showing up very confident in that room, but inside they are feeling some of that awkwardness as well. So I think even just being able to share with others, it creates this shared connection. Um, And then we feel less alone because we're all going through this, this, this awkwardness in a variety of times in our lives. And it starts to almost take away some of its power that is power over us. It's more around like, oh, let's embrace this. Like, I I love what you're saying there. Yeah, I want to highlight a couple of things that you said, because the research 100% supports this as fact, which is a confident people feel awkward just as much, if not more than people who don't describe themselves as confident, because to avoid awkwardness implies avoiding uncertainty which is never happening. Life is not that way. To avoid awkward situations socially, professionally implies we have got our crystal ball sitting in front of us and we've eliminated all uncertainty. And I don't know a single confident person that has cracked that code. If they have, they can call me, right? So that's that's not happening. And the second thing, which I loved about what you said is there's actually research that says that when a confident person or when a person expresses awkward discomfort, it actually comes across as even more confident because their lack of perfection puts other people at ease. They're even more likable and they appear even more confident because their lack of perfection puts other people at ease. So I know, you know, and I've heard you talk about this on previous episodes that, you know, authenticity is the big buzzword right now. Authenticity at work, so important, so important. And yet I talk to leaders and I feel like you must as well that say, I want to be more authentic at work. I want to be, I sure, yeah, sign me up. I want to be that way. But I really see awkwardness as one of the unexplored obstacles to accessing that authenticity. So if we don't understand where it's coming from and how to handle it, then getting a grasp on authenticity will always feel like the target's moving further and further away. So we've kind of get, kind of back up a little and do that work first. Yeah, I think it's really valuable what you're saying there, because that's around putting on band-aids without getting at the root, right? And the root is really understanding. And I think for each of us, there can be different, uh, you know, family of origins, what we've experienced outside in the world, culturally, a multitude of things that have caused us to shy away from being in those awkward moments and not allowing us to do that. And I think there can be a lot of mindset work. And I talk a lot about also really getting into your body and noticing what it looks like to have self-trust and be like, it's okay. Cause our body also, our nervous system is having that normal response. It's saying like safety, safety, safety. Like you might die. Like if you stay in this awkward, right. When we're embarrassed or shame or all of that in that moment, it feels like, right. Your body feels like, Oh, warning signals. Like you might die. So get yourself out of this situation right now. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And our physiology is actually so interesting as it relates to awkwardness, because kind of an extension to what you said, there is actually proof that our brains feel physical pain and social pain in the same spot to the point where if I fell and hurt myself, that hurts, you know, that pain is in my physical brain. Kristen, if we were together and you fell publicly and embarrassed yourself, for those that are even, you know, there's actually a relationship I explore in the book between empathy and awkwardness. For those that are highly empathetic, I would feel that social pain as though I'm the one who tripped and fell in the same part of my brain. And so an interesting exploration, all of this is yes, that that physical biology, that protection is there. But sometimes when we struggle to manage our own awkwardness, something I that people find really interesting in the book is that those of us who are highly empathetic are actually even more prone to struggling because we see it and feel it so viscerally in our body when others do it, that when we do it, it feels even more amplified. So it's such an interesting exploration. Absolutely. And I can connect to that. I can think of those moments where I feel for them in that moment. It can be as simple as even just watching it in a movie or watching a video. I'm like, oh, like my (laughs) whole body is feeling for them and what they're experiencing in that moment. And I think that's, again, going back to that shared humanity and being aware of how that can be impacting us. So I think that's um, really, really important. When you start to think about the the work that you're doing in this area, Henna, you know, we've got a bunch of leaders who are listening to this podcast who tend to be individuals who are very driven and ambitious. And I think sometimes they're not necessarily aware. I think awareness mm-hmm. is a huge piece that this might be even operating in the background. So yeah. if you start to think about helping leaders to be able to, you know, maybe even assess this and start asking themselves some more questions, what would you suggest for them? Yeah, a two-pronged answer here. First, you know, we are working across different generations now. So leaders, this may apply to them directly, but I think this is also a really important conversation to think about their teams that they lead and who reports to them because there is now gobs of data that breaks my heart about the way social skills have atrophied. You know, as of our conversation, there is a meme floating around about how doorbell companies are probably going to go out of business because everyone just texts here, right? I'm here because they're so terrified to ring the doorbell and have to deal with someone who isn't their friend, right? Social skills have atrophied. And what was interesting that the studies that came out of the pandemic is it used to be that awkwardness was just attributed to folks who were introverted right? It almost seemed like that was the relationship, but all of us extroverts or those who identify as such, remember those first couple of in-person meetings after the pandemic. And we were all like, oh my God, I forgot how to people, right? I forgot how to be in this situation. And so first things first is social skills can and will atrophy. So this is especially important for leaders who are working in hybrid environments or remote environments, understanding that the less connected you are in the more traditional ways the less easy it is for people on their team or themselves to sometimes bring forth that awkward conversation because our muscles don't have the practice that we used to have. Um, A fun little test I like to give people is the elevator test. Have you ever gotten on an elevator and pressed the door close button to avoid having to have a small talk, awkward conversation for somebody else about to get on? It is, there was a, a YouGov survey that came out. It was something like 30 some percent of people do that. And I think it was over 10,000 people that took the survey. That is 3,000 some people that would rather hit the button than endure the five second, 10 second awkwardness of being on a, a ride with somebody else. 
So this is really important data to look at. We've gotten out of this practice. And so as a leader, are you having, you know, quote unquote, elevator moments where you would just rather not? And if that's not you, understand that people on your team are likely having a lot of these moments. These are people who swipe to date. They don't even approach people, you know, to, to say, can I get your number anymore? So their social skills, for better or worse, are atrophying. And it is up to us as leaders to create intentional moments to rebuild them if we are going to continue to have the cultures of communication that we want. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point you're making there, um, Henna, because it's definitely been my experience. And I think some of it, if we even look at what's going on with, I, I always see so many parallels between raising kids and raising employees and workplaces. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we also, anyone listening as a parent, <laughs> I would remind you that same opportunity there, because I think we can be doing a disservice to a lot of our kids who are going to be future employees in these workplaces no matter where they are on the spectrum, they might be, you know, in elementary school, high school, going into university and going into our workplaces. Um, the parents doing too much for them as well. Like those moments where I, I can't tell you, like, I think I'm the only one mom with some of the things yeah. that I'm having my daughter do where I'll say, Oh, like you want a book for that. Okay. So here's the number. If you want to practice the conversation first, that's great. Like we can practice the conversation, but you're going to go yep. call to get your nails done and tell her what you need to have done and, and, and get her comfortable with those things. And I think the more, you know, I'm talking about this on the, at the, and the home front, but listen, I think those same challenges are happening and you could be doing that in the workplace as well, in terms of giving them an opportunity to be doing some role play, to practice having that dialogue because they are, it does feel quite foreign and uncomfortable. Yeah. You're I'm, I'm smiling as you're talking because I just experienced this with my own daughter the other day too. And my publisher actually teasing the idea of like a good awkward for teens, because you're right. You know, they're so unconditioned. We were talking about ordering tacos and I went onto the website that normally we order from. It's like a toast tab or something. It wasn't working. It wasn't yeah. working. And I actually wasn't hungry for tacos. Neither was my son. My husband was traveling. And so I said, Layla, you're the only one who wants tacos. Can you call and order? And she's like, I can't call mom. I can't call the taco place. And I literally, I was a little gobsmacked because, you know, her mother teaches this. And I was like, what do you mean you can't call? She's like, it's so awkward. I can't call. And I'm like, oh, oh dear. Oh dear, this is what, you know, and again, it is, it is a generation. I don't think this is any failure of us as parents. This is just what they've been conditioned for. And so a lot of the argument I make, and this is true again, of leaders, of caregivers, of anybody, it's not anyone's fault. It's cultural, it's systemic, it's the world they live in. They can't help when they were born, right? That was one of the most powerful reframes I got as it relates to parenting and caregiving is they can't help when they were born. I can't shame her that she's never had to do this, Mm -hmm. but to your point, we have to create space. We have to teach. We have to practice. We have to do these things because ultimately life will be such that she will have to have these conversations. And the more we avoid them and the more those muscles atrophy, the harder they're going to be to rebuild. So we've got to stay in the gym, right? Stay in the mind gym as often as possible. So when the moment strikes, it doesn't make you freeze. And that's true of of leaders and employees too. And the beautiful thing is it ends up being a really empowering experience afterwards. I can speak Mm -hmm. to the other side when she did it, she realized, oh, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And oh, actually I did that really well. And I'm looking forward to the next time I'm going to approach it like this. Right. So it's, it's also helping them. We, people want to hit their edges. They want to learn and grow. We feel uh, most fulfilled as humans, as we're continuing to reach that potential. So I think it's reminding too. I think sometimes 
sometimes what happens, it can come from a good place. I'm just thinking of a conversation I had with a leader yesterday where she was seeing so many times where the leaders were such good allies, but to the point that they were protecting their team. And I said, you know, we need to remember again, we have to see our team as being naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. When they keep taking that on, they're not learning those skills. They're not, it's almost giving the exact opposite message. You're saying, I don't see, see you as being capable enough to be able to learn these skills. So I think it's reminding ourselves, even where it might feel like that this might be difficult for these individuals. They're actually, you're taking away their opportunity to learn and grow and and develop those skills. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, learning new skills is bumpy and messy. And, and one of the sort of analogies, metaphors I give in the book is, you know, ultimately what we're dealing with right now is a corporate culture system that is trying too hard to optimize for smoothness, right? right? We put a premium on smoothness. And if you think about ancient cultures, like, you know, Greek mythology or Stoicism or Hinduism or Buddhism, any of these, these ancient cultures, religions, revered friction. They revered bumps. Those were things that they looked for and celebrated. And yet as a modern culture, everything is about friction-free. Everything is about optimizing for smoothness. Everything is awkward avoidance. Everything is about when it's tricky or messy or blunder prone, don't do it. And so there is a cost to this optimizing for smoothness. This is the, you know, in caregiving, they talk about how we're in this era now where it's a lot of lawnmower and steamroller parents. Have you heard this expression? Oh, share more. Where, where essentially, you know, there was helicopter parenting was an expression for a while where you were, you know, kind of hovering. Now they're saying it's not as much helicopter, but it's lawnmower and steamroller parenting or Zamboni parenting, where essentially the parents aren't doing it for them and they're not hovering, but they're clearing the path, right? right? They're clearing the path so that there's nothing bumpy or frictiony that has to be walked ahead, yes. which is just as dangerous, right? We have to allow the path to be bumpy. Otherwise they lose those opportunities, as you beautifully said, for skill building. Right. We can't do it that way. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Um, so if, if I were to give you a magic wand, Hannah, and I mm-hmm. could say, okay, you wave the magic wand, you could say on the, maybe that we could talk on the individual level and then more sure. on the workplace level. What would you like to see more of on the individual level? So kind of your, um, your dream for what you'd like to see more for individuals and what would you like yeah. to see more in organizations? Oh, I love that question. What I would love to see more of with individuals is ownership of everyone's inherent awkwardness, right? I want to hear more people say out loud, oh my God, cringe. I can't believe that, right? Because that emotion is so universal and so shared. And what I have observed over and over as I do this work with people and in workshops is talk about instant connection with another human being. It literally is a magical little, you know, formula for creating instant humanity between two people. So I would love individuals to start just owning it and naming it more at an organizational level, at a team level. What I would love to see is teams, even if it's just three to five minutes at the top of a meeting, carving out space to share social blunders, mishaps. You know, I like to call them um, cracked egg stories, right? Everybody let's go around because we're all human. We all had them share something that went terribly wrong or a blunder or a mistake or something that didn't go as planned. When we give airtime to them, as you said, name it to tame it, not only does it release the power, but it also reminds every other person in that room, 
It's not just them. Awkwardness is this crazy emotion where often when we feel it, we're like, I'm the only one who feels it like to this extent right now. No, not true. Not true. The research proves it. Not true. So when we create a little bit of airtime, I'm not saying monopolize the meeting, but a little bit of airtime to normalizing these feelings, the data actually says that everything that follows, if you start a meeting that way, everything that follows is actually more creative, more innovative, more generative. And people are like, well, how come? Because the guard came down a little. The guard came down a little and people now feel like they can be a bit more open, a bit more expressive because we've sort of gotten that out of the way. So I would love to see that become more common practice in teams and organizations. Yeah, I think that is really, really important. I think what you do to set that up and and also what it's creating is deeper connections. When we start to think about organizations and them running more effectively, it's so much built that, that I always talk about trust being the foundation and we yeah. trust others more when we get to see that person and who they are in all parts of them, perfectly imperfect. And yeah. I think people have learned so often around that vulnerability piece that it's, it's seen weak to be able to let that guard down. And we all know, and we have all the science, Brene's given us a ton around this, yeah. uh, around how actually it's the opposite. It might feel counterintuitive, but it does the opposite. It creates deeper connections when we allow ourselves to be seen in that way. Yes, exactly right. And I love, I love that you pointed to the word often a question I get asked around this is, you know, is there a distinction between awkwardness and vulnerability? And the distinction that I point to is they are sisters in this work. I like to think of awkwardness as a stepping stone to vulnerability because awkwardness is a little lower on the scale of emotional exposure. Yeah. So if you know someone is not in a place yet where they feel comfortable displaying their full vulnerability at work, which takes work, right? To get to the point to embody true, authentic vulnerability. We have the danger of something in the book. I have a small bit on vulnerability, like faux vulnerability. There's a danger of that. We don't want that. And so where I suggest starting is be willing to stay in that awkward, messy middle first. It doesn't have to be as high on the scale of emotional exposure. If you can get comfortable there, then true vulnerability as a leader is within reach. But if we try to jump, Sometimes right. we get make that misstep into that faux vulnerability that everyone can see and feel. So we got to, got to back up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. When you think about doing all of the research for this book and what you learn through everyone and workshops, what has surprised you the most when it comes mm. to awkwardness and good awkward? Yeah. One of my favorite pieces of data that still kind of makes me laugh is there was a study that was done by an anthropologist with the Biami tribe in New Guinea. And these people lived in an area where they had never, ever seen their own reflection. So even the water was just running too fast, right? They couldn't even see anything. And this anthropologist came with some modern, you know, kind of things, including a mirror. These people had never seen their reflection. And the very first time they looked at themselves in the mirror, they cringed, they grimaced, right? Because what they thought they were was at odds with what was on display in that moment. And so what that study really illuminated, which I thought was fascinating and and kind of surprising, was that awkwardness is 100% universal. It is so universal. And in modern days, a lot of this is kicked up in adolescence, especially for, you know, kind of a kind of modern day professionals across the globe, because we've got mirrors, we've got technology, we start to recognize things in ourselves, right? Uh, But to me, that was the most fascinating piece of data that even adults who had never seen it can experience that same emotion for the first time at a different point in life because 
they had access to it, but it is not avoidable. It is universal across any human being. Wow. That is fascinating. I can imagine because you just have this, it's kind of, it feels the same thing at times. I still feel like that same 18 year old and they'll like, yeah. I'm like, Oh, but I'm not, I'm not 18 anymore, right. but I feel like it. Cause it's the same soul yeah. and spirit. That's always been there. Um, so yeah. I could see that would be, um, that would be really, really fascinating. Um, I have loved this conversation, Hannah. I want to give you an opportunity to leave a final thought, whatever is on your mind that you'd like to leave with our audience. Oh, I would love to leave your audience with my favorite mantra around this work, which is when you are at a point where you're thinking, do I do it? Do I not do it awkward, but do it anyway. It's that, that mantra has carried me far and wide this past year. And so I just want to encourage you to do the same. Yeah. So good. Where can people learn more about you and your work? And of course the new book coming out in September. No, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm pretty much Hannah Pryor everywhere. So Hannah Pryor on Instagram, Hannah Pryor on LinkedIn. Um, You can go to hannahpryor.com. That will redirect to my regular website, which talks about speaking workshops, et cetera. And for details on the book, you can actually just put in goodawkward.com. That'll take you to the landing page for pre-orders. I've got lots of fun little bonuses and things. And so if this resonates with anyone, I'd be so grateful to, to be connected. Please link up. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here today, Hannah. Thanks for having me. So good to see you. And for everyone, wherever you are in the world, we're saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening, sending tons of love. Bye-bye. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.